Uh, Church, I'm so glad you're here this morning. I hope that you are excited to be here. We are diving right back into uh, our series called The Blessed Life. If you want to grab your Bible, go ahead and go with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're diving into this series looking at the uncommon blessing that is ours, the uncommon life that we have as kingdom citizens, as citizens of the kingdom of God. And we're seeing this through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaches this incredible sermon over Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and he unpacks and illuminates for his disciples and for the people there what it looks like to live as kingdom citizens, not necessarily what they do, but who they are, who they are in Christ. And last week, I was so thankful. Pastor Daniel kind of went into those first four Beatitudes, and we were able to see how um, those build on one another and how they're kind of intrinsically linked together, which, by the way, is true of, of all the Beatitudes that I hope we'll see this morning. But we started out by looking at those first four. And those, we got a little, we, you were able to see this little stair step. Uh, this was very helpful to me to, to picture these together. We looked at this, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what we discovered was we were building up to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So how did these work together? Well, we talked about how recognizing that we are spiritually poor. When he says, blessed are the poor, that isn't a monetary condition, it's a spiritual one. Jesus was saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty, that we're spiritually bankrupt. And it's a blessing because when we see that, we are driven to mourn that condition. We mourn our spiritual poverty. We're heartbroken over the fact that we're there. And in recognizing that spiritual poverty and mourning our sinful condition, we are made humble. We're made meek. He says, blessed are the meek. Here's why we're made meek, because I cannot in one hand hold a full understanding of my sinful condition and in the other hand walk pridefully. Okay, I can't do that, right? And so Jesus said it's a blessing when you realize spiritual poverty because it breaks your heart. You mourn that sinful condition. You're made humble. You're made meek. And in that place of being brought low, you are positioned to hunger and thirst now for the only thing that can satisfy, and that's the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Jesus. And when I When I engage that righteousness and Jesus becomes the Lord of my life, he begins to do this work in my heart and I begin to hunger and thirst more after him. My life begins to change and suddenly I want the life of Jesus to be my life. I want his nature to be my nature and I want his character to be my character. And listen, this is important. This isn't something that we can manufacture on our own, right? I think some of us feel like, we, we, you've heard me use the illustration of a treadmill before. Some of us feel like uh, we get on this, this treadmill of life and we're working hard, working hard, trying our best, trying our best, going fast, wanting to do right things, do good things, say right things, act the right way because we believe that somehow in doing all that is right, we become right. And Jesus says, no, you become right in me and out of that flows right doing. And so Jesus moves us to that place where we can see him as the only satisfaction of what our heart wants. We hunger and thirst for 
righteousness. And as his righteousness then begins to work in me and transform my heart and my desires and my priorities, as that happens, it cannot help but to begin to work out through me. And that's what I want us to look at this morning in these next three Beatitudes. I have to acknowledge every single one of these Beatitudes could be a sermon all by themselves. And so I hope that you will take some time to to, to rest in them and to read them and to really pursue God. They are, they are so rich. And so grab your Bible and go with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. Um, the Beatitudes that we're going to look at today are in verse 7, 8, and 9. But I just love to read these Beatitudes. I love to hear the voice of Jesus speaking blessing over his people. I don't know. There's something in there that just... It does something in my heart to hear my Savior speaking blessing over me. And so let's start in verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. God satisfies that way. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I love that one. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What do I do when that happens? Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, when we look at those first four beatitudes, being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it kind of paints the picture of the person who's recognizing their condition and recognizing their need for salvation. And what we're going to look at this morning, these next three of being merciful and being pure in heart and being a peacemaker, this is the person who has now found that salvation. So what we're seeing now is that the gospel has done and is doing its inward transformation of the heart so that now it can begin to do its outward working through that transformed heart. And so we kind of see that we're looking at merciful and pure in heart and peacemaker. All three of these describe the character and nature of Jesus and therefore should also describe the character of those who follow him. Does that make sense? So there are... (laughs) My sons are like me. One of my sons in particular is really like me. And uh, he is like me because he's mine. Are you with me? How many of you see your children and in your children, you see the very best of yourself and you also see the parts of yourself you wish you hadn't given them, but they got it anyway. You know what I mean? Uh, I looked 
and according to what my mother and grandmother told me, acted just like my mother's dad, John Gall. We looked a lot alike, and we behaved a lot alike, uh, which wasn't always great. But he was a good man, and he was a loving man. And and, uh, uh, my son, Clayton, uh, looks like me and acts like me, and there's some really good parts about that. And then there's, but why would that be true? Because he's mine. My son Jackson is mine. He's going to act like me and talk like me and sometimes even think like me and behave like me and look like me. Why? Because there's a nature that's been passed down. And if, if we see these words merciful and, and pure in heart and peacemakers, these are the words that describe the king of our kingdom, which means as his citizens, we are like him. Because now we belong to him. We are his. And so I want you to see how these work together, just like those first four work together, starting with hunger and thirsting for hungering and thirsting for righteousness, these next ones work together. What do I mean? When I hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus has made this promise that I will be satisfied, meaning that in Christ, I'm going to find the satisfaction that I need. I'm going to receive the mercy of God over the poverty of my spirit. I'm going to receive that mercy. And in receiving that mercy, I become a person who gives that mercy, right? I give that mercy. And in, and in being a merciful person, my motives change and my, the purity of my heart changes and how I present myself to God and how I interact with man changes. And as I live mercifully and have a pure heart, I become a peacemaker in the world. I'm telling you, Jesus was the greatest teacher of all time, how he would build these up so that they created a picture of the kingdom citizen. And so what I want us to look at this morning is I want us to take these three, merciful, pure in heart, and peacemaker, and I want us to dive in and just unpack those for a few minutes because as citizens of the kingdom of God, he is building in us an uncommon character. He is building in us an uncommon nature. And so I want us to look at what that is. Citizens of the kingdom of God are, here's the first one, we are uncommonly merciful. We're uncommonly merciful. Jesus said in uh, Matthew 5, verse 7, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I want us as we go to kind of set some definitions for these. So what does it mean to be merciful? It means to genuinely feel a deep sympathy for the suffering of others that then moves us to extend generosity or forgiveness towards them, especially when they don't deserve it, because that's what Jesus extended to us. I'm going to leave that up for a moment. If you want to take a picture of it, you can, or maybe you're a speed writer and you want to write it down. But to be merciful is to feel a deep sympathy for the sufferings or sins of others. When was the last time you felt sympathy for someone's sin condition? That's uncommon, right? It's an uncommon character. That then moves us to extend kindness or forgiveness toward them, especially when they don't deserve it. Why? Because that's what Jesus extended to us. This word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5 for merciful is the Greek word eliemon. Eliemon. And that word translated means to be full of pity and bring help to the wretched. 
That's what the word Eliamon means, to be full of pity and bring help to the wretched, which means there's two things I think that it's very important that we notice, that kingdom mercy is both feeling and doing, right? Kingdom mercy is feeling, but more than just feeling. This kind of mercy that Jesus talk, is talking about here is more than just feeling pity. It's more than just feeling sorry. Now, for many of us, that's kind of the extent of our mercy. And I've been in that, in that season as well. I, I, I know that feeling of I, I quickly feel sorry for someone's condition. I see their situation. I, I wish things were different. I have pity on them. But that's the extent of my mercy. I wish it were different, but too often that's just where... It ends, but Jesus is talking about more than a feeling. But listen, kingdom mercy is doing, but it's more than just doing, right? For some of us, our mercy might look like doing good things for the less fortunate. We know it's the right thing to do, so we do that. We'll write the check or we'll volunteer some time every now and then, but the reality is we never truly feel that deep sense of, of sorrow over their suffering, has anyone else ever found yourself, because we're just so exposed to the suffering around the world that you become numb to things that shouldn't make us numb anymore? Right? We see suffering and, and we just, we're numb to it. Every day you are presented with a reason to weep in the presence of God. Because your heart is broken over the suffering that happens in our world. And this is the kind of mercy Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a mercy that feels deeply and then in feeling deeply is moved to engage it and in that suffering. You know, a few years ago, there's a young lady. She's grown up now. Her name was uh, uh, Shana Huffman. Uh, you may know Shana's story. She was right here at New, part of New Beginnings and her mom and dad have been here forever. And her parents went on mission to uh, Africa, and while they were there, they took all the pictures, came back, told her all the stories of, of the, the suffering there, and how so much of it was just linked to the fact that they didn't have access to clean water. And something in Shana's heart just kind of sparked, and she said, that breaks my heart. She was sad over it, but she wouldn't let it go, and she kept bringing it up until she came to her mom and said, I want us to raise money for that. I want to do something about that. And they started something called the pinky promise. And right now, through the money that was raised, through that, that mercy that Shana felt, there are wells in Rwanda, in Burundi, and whole villages have access to clean water. That's a picture of mercy. It was a felt pity, but then moved to action to engage and see that suffering come to an end. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who see suffering and then engage it to eradicate it. That's, that's the mercy Jesus is painting here. And why is that the standard of mercy? Because isn't that what he did for us? Isn't that the mercy that we've received in Christ? Listen, we only see this word, Eliamon, used twice in the New Testament, just two times. One here in Matthew 5 when Jesus is describing the, the citizens of the kingdom of God and how we should live. And another in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where the writer of Hebrews is describing Jesus and how he, in his mercy, paid for our sins. So think about that for just a moment. 
Twice in the New Testament, the word is used. One is to describe what we have received in Christ, and the other is to describe how that should now work its way out to others. What am I, what am I saying? I'm saying that because we have received uncommon mercy, we become people of uncommon mercy. Are you with me? Are you thankful that the mercy of Jesus didn't stop at just feeling sorry for your sinful state? Oh, our story would be different if it just stopped at him feeling pity for us. But instead, he was moved to action. What did that action look like? It looked like him coming into world, into this world, invading this place, the creator becoming created so that in being created and living a perfect life, he might embrace that cross and redeem his creation and make us new so that we can then be like him. That's the picture of mercy. When Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, he says, blessed are those who feel sorrow and are moved to do something about it. And not only did Jesus demonstrate in this in the gospel, but he lived this out every day of his life. He showed us how to live as a people of uncommon mercy. Jesus touched the leper. You didn't do that back then. Matter of fact, they had to stay way over there. Jesus touched the leper. Jesus touched the ears of those who couldn't hear. And he opened them. He touched the eyes of those who couldn't see and they could see. He touched the mouths of those who couldn't talk and they could talk. He touched the bodies of those who couldn't walk and they would get up. He, he loved the unlovable. He welcomed the undesirable. And even today, right here in this room, he is saving the unsavable. Why? Is it because we deserve it? No, it's because of his mercy. Titus chapter 3 says this. Verse 4 and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness, that's mercy, by the way. When you see the word loving kindness in God's word, it's another word for mercy. But the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. When it appeared, he saved us. Why? Because we were so righteous, we deserved it. Is that what it says? He saved us. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We have received mercy, grace upon grace in Christ. And in receiving that, we are transformed to become a people who pour that So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we live mercifully? How do we respond in mercy? This is where the rubber meets the road for me. How do we respond in mercy when we've been offended? How do we respond in mercy when we've been slandered? How do we respond in mercy when we've been mistreated and hurt and wounded unjustly accused? How do we respond in mercy when that happens? Pastor Todd had two great thoughts here, and I, I wanted to share them with you. The first was this. How do you respond to the person? How do you respond in mercy to the person who has done this, who has wounded you or hurt you or slandered you? The first is this. We see them in light of their story, not their sin. 
We see them in light of their story, not their sin. What do I mean by that? I mean, we have to see them as their sin is a symptom of the problem, right? Their sin is a symptom of the deeper issue. When someone is hurting, when someone hurts you, you can bet that they are themselves hurting. You've probably heard the phrase, hurting people hurt people, right? That phrase is 100% true. So what does this mean when I see their story and not just their sin? It means that I don't just see the hurt they caused me. I see the pain and the hurt in their story. And it doesn't excuse their sin, but it just might explain it. Are you with me? That's hard, right? <laughs> that is, that's... Jesus just didn't play with that stuff. Uh, it, it, that's hard. That is, man, I can't do that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's the first thing. We see them in light of their story, not their sin. Here's the second thing. We see yourself by what's been done for you by Jesus and not what's been done to you by them. Oh, here we go. We see ourselves... By what's been done for us in Christ, not what's been done to us by them. What do I mean? When I see the depth of mercy that has been shown to me, when I see how I rebelled against God, how I sinned against Him, how I was an absolute offense to His holiness, and I see that His response to me was not damnation and separation, but in Christ mercy, when I see that, it leads me to that place where I can give that same mercy to others. Why? Because just like hurting people hurt people, people who have experienced mercy will be merciful. The mercy flowing out of my life is the evidence that mercy has flowed into my life. Are you with me? And if you live a life that is merciless, if you live a life that does not extend mercy, what does that look like? If you live a life of sizing people up, making quick judgments, and moving on from them, I don't know anybody that does that, but maybe. If your life is characterized by being merciless, the question I need you to answer this morning is, have I received the mercy? Have I received that mercy? Because the declaration that I have received mercy flowing in is that mercy is flowing out. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Here's the second thing we see for the kingdom citizens. They're uncommonly merciful and they are uncommonly pure. Look at verse 8 of Matthew 5. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, I love that. Jesus said, blessed are the, we're going to see God. Don't you want that, your life to see? God, we're going to jump into what that means, but I want to set our definition of being pure in heart. Being pure in heart means to possess an inner desire to please God by keeping our hearts free from anything that might grieve Him or deceive others. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It means to possess an inner desire to please God by keeping our hearts free from anything that might grieve Him 
or deceive others. So in keeping our hearts pure, that means we are keeping our hearts pure before God and pure before others. So the question is, what is the heart? What is this? When Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, is he talking about this organ in our chest that's pumping blood through our body? No, he's in Hebrew culture, the heart was the seat, if you will, of our mental and moral and spiritual makeup. In both the Old and New Testament, the heart represents the seat of grief and joy and desires and affections and perceptions, our thoughts and our understanding. The heart is linked with our powers of reasoning and imagination and our conscience and our intentions and our purpose and our will and our faith and our believing. It represents that hidden part of our lives that governs the outward part of our lives. That's what Jesus said. When he said, blessed are the pure in heart, he's saying, blessed are those who are pure in the parts nobody else can see except God. He's speaking right to the very core of who we are. That's what he's talking Blessed are those who are pure in heart. But I want you to listen to how Jesus describes the heart. Listen to how Jesus describes the heart. In Matthew 15, verse 19 and 20, this is Jesus speaking. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that while the heart is the seat of your spiritual makeup, it is also the core issue that is corrupting humanity. He said out of the heart comes evil thoughts, comes murder, comes adultery, comes idolatry, comes theft and false witness and slander. Meaning what? That if I'm going to have a pure heart, it doesn't begin by the, the, the labor of trying to change what I do. It begins in the forfeiting of my will so that God can purify my heart. It isn't behavior management, it's heart surgery. And it isn't heart surgery, it's a heart transplant. Are you with me? Because when we lean into the gospel, when we lean into the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and we see that as the propitiation, the payment for our sins, which is what the exact word that was used in Hebrews 2.17 to describe God's mercy toward us in Christ. When we see that and we receive it and we make him the Lord of our life, there is a heart transplant that takes place. And the book of Ezekiel describes what God wants to do in that. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27 says this, And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now that ends with obeying his rules, but it begins with the heart transplant. And they're in that order for a reason. Are you with me? Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have had this heart transplant done in them. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you've been given a new heart. You've been given new longings, new motives, new priorities. And when our heart is made new, we have this new desire to please Him. And again, this isn't something we can produce on our own. It is the divine work of God through the divine power of the Holy Spirit and indwelling of the Holy Spirit to divinely transform our hearts. So how do I pursue purity of heart toward others? It begins with a heart that belongs to Jesus. And then it begins with a heart that every day wakes up and lays itself down for Jesus again. Every day wakes up and preaches the truth of God's word over again. Every day wakes up and acknowledges, I need a divine work because I'm going to encounter some stuff today that I can't manage and my best efforts won't be good enough and my motives are going to get sideways and my words are going to get sideways and then my actions are going to get sideways. So it is the one-time transformation of salvation and it is the everyday saving of that heart through the ongoing work of sanctification. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. What a promise. <laughs> what a promise. You know, when Jesus was, this was not a new promise, by the way. This was the echo of Old Testament promises that people would see God. When Jesus was teaching this, I believe that he had Psalm 24 in mind. In Psalm 24, David writes this. He wrote in verse 3 and, and 4, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his Holy place. In other words, who can draw near to God? Who can be in his presence? Who can see God? And the answer comes back. He who has clean hands and a what? Pure heart. David asked the question, who gets to see God? And the answer comes back. He who has a pure heart. And Jesus, hundreds and hundreds of years later, got his disciples and said, come here, men. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is what we call a, um, um, an already but not yet promise. It's an already but a not yet promise. What do I mean by that? I mean it's a promise that is true today but is not yet fully realized. We know that the day is coming because of belonging to Christ and because of what he has done. We know that the day is coming when he will return. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? That don't get talked about enough in the kingdom anymore. He is coming again. And we, because we know that he's coming again, there's going to be the day when we are going to be in the very presence of God where we will see him and we will know him and we will see God. Do you believe that? Are you longing for the day when your faith will be made sight? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So that's coming, right? That's not yet, but, it, but it's coming. So what's the already? This is also, that means this promise is a, a reality for us today. It is a current reality. Why? Because of Jesus, we can know God. We can know his ways. We can experience his presence. We can understand his will. And as my heart becomes more and more free from idolatry and deceit and false motives and lust and jealousy, and as the sanctifying work of Christ is done in my heart, my vision of God clarifies. 
J.D. Greer said, purity leads to clarity. Believer, if you want to see God, it begins in that heart being transformed and every day asking Him to lance out those things that distort your vision of Him. Because as those things are destroyed, as those strongholds are destroyed, as they're pulled up by their root and taken out of my life, my vision of God clarifies. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here's the last one. He says, kingdom citizens are uncommonly peaceful. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What is a peacemaker? What does that mean? It means to live a life that strives to live peaceably with others and actively pursues reconciliation wherever strife or conflict exists. To live a life that strives to live peaceably with others and actively pursues reconciliation wherever strife or conflict exists. I want you to notice something here. This is important. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peaceful. He didn't say, blessed are those who desire peace. He said, blessed are those who go out and make peace. See the difference there? We might all want things to be peaceful, but a peacemaker, this isn't a passive role. This is a bold role that engages so that peace can be made. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. So what does that look like for us? How do we live as peacemakers? I think there's two things very quickly that I want you to see. First, we are peacemakers by striving to live peaceably with others. We're peacemakers by striving to live peaceably with others. Again, this isn't passive. This isn't ignoring conflict. This isn't ignoring hurt. This is being willing in humility and Christ's likeness to initiate forgiveness when we've been hurt or we've been offended. This is acknowledging and owning mistakes that we have made so that we can eliminate strife. And listen, this might sting a little. It is, it is also avoiding senseless rhetoric about stuff that doesn't matter. There are a lot of social media warriors. Oh, how brave you are, right? When you get onto Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, and man, so brave, so determined to prove your point. And that becomes the place where we air grievance. That becomes the place where we... Uh, cause friction and we go into that place and we're more determined about being right than we are about being holy. Now you don't, I'm not just yelling about social media. I'm just, some of you are more determined about being right. Some, <laughs> some of you. The kingdom of God is not displayed in my right opinion. It is declared in my right living. Are you with me? The kingdom is not seen in my right opinion. 
It's declared in my right living. The kingdom of God is not seen in the merit of my point of view. It is seen in the mercy and the purity and the peace that I extend to someone who holds the exact opposite point of view. When was the last time you reached out to someone in mercy who you knew you completely disagreed with and you brought them in and you had a conversation covered in mercy and peace? That's what Jesus is talking about here. That means we're going to have to pick up the phone. We're going to have to go sit down over coffee. We're going to have to fight through the awkward. We're going to have to own when we've made a mistake. And we're going to have to sometimes, listen, extend forgiveness whether it's asked for or not. Because that's how we live at peace. So we, we actively pursue it with others, and then we pursue peace wherever strife or conflict exists. Wherever strife or conflict exists. Listen, we need this in our climate. We are more divided now, socially, politically, racially, than we have ever been. And some of us would rather be meddlers than mediators. Come on, don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. Some of us would rather be meddlers than mediators. Right? A meddler wants to stir it up. A meddler wants to scoop. A meddler, meddler wants to be the first to know so they can be the first to tell. A mediator is different. A mediator takes this hand and this hand and sits them down together and in humility, cloaked in grace and mercy, works toward healing. In our society, there is a house fire of animosity that is burning and too many believers are coming at it with gas instead of the living water. What would happen if you poured living water on the divisions you see in our culture, in your world, in your home? What would happen if you poured living water on that? How do we do that? Through mercy, through purity of heart, and through being a peacemaker. This begins, it can only begin with a heart transformation in Christ. So has Jesus transformed your heart? I ask you that every week because I don't believe I can stand before the Lord and not ask you that every week. Because I think it's possible that people can spend a lifetime in a seat like these and have the head full of all the right knowledge and their heart never have been transformed by the work of the gospel. Have you met the king of the kingdom and has he radically changed you? If Jesus hasn't changed your life, then Jesus isn't Lord of your life. So has, have you, has he transformed your heart? We're going to sing in just a moment, and as we do, I want you to come. If you, if you need for that to happen today, come take one of our ministers by the hand. We would love to have that conversation with you. And for some, your confession would be, I have allowed my heart to harden toward people. It's just hardened toward people. And it just feels good to respond with judgment. Maybe today you need to come and ask the Lord, would you, would you peel back some of those hardened layers? You gave me that heart of flesh. Would you prick that heart again? Would you break my heart again? Would you cause me to want to lead with mercy, to want to lead with a pure motive, to want to lead with peace? 
because those are the things that I've received in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, apart from you, we can't do any of this. But in you, we are, we become this. So Lord, would you move now? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you give us courage to obey? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.